Anyway, Tom and Alita. Or Alita and Tom. Woo! Well, good morning. Um, I'm going to read from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 to 10. And it says, Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, stand firm in faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Uh, the reason why I read you that passage is because in my Christian walk, it's really spoken to me. Um, during my walk with the Lord about around, around the age of 19, something happened in my life which caused me to leave everything I'd ever known. Um, I got deeply hurt and I got deeply offended. I started to harbour unforgiveness and I never really dealt with it in my heart. But instead, I stuck my head in the sand like an ostrich and buried it. Um, a few years later, so by this time I've got a five-year-old, she gets very ill and we spend a lot of time in an ambulance going to the hospital and she almost dies. This causes me to be burdened by fear. So not only am I harboring unforgiveness, I'm very fearful. Then further down the track, we have a business that fails. We end up with a sizable debt with a very high interest rate. So then, of course, I've got a deeper root of unforgiveness. So there I was, very burdened, by unforgiveness, fear and stress. And because I never dealt with what was going on in my heart, my whole life was affected. It affected my relationship with people around me. It affected the way I acted. I was like a, an explosive volcano. It affected my mind and I actually started to have thoughts of ending, ending it all. But God ministered to my heart and I had to make a choice. And it's a choice. It's an everyday choice. A choice to do what it says in verse 6. To humble yourself under God's mighty hand. And verse 7. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I had to find out what it really meant to humble yourself before God. It meant that I had to take the focus off myself and focus off, focus on what really mattered, and that's God. 
It meant that I had to come to the cross with a clear conscience. It meant that I had to confess my sin to the Lord and give up what was burdening me in my heart. And I had to stay there at the foot of the cross. I now know that true forgiveness means looking at those who have hurt you with the love of God in your eyes, to see them through God's eyes. Um, First Peter, Peter actually wrote First Peter chapter 5 to believers who at the time were going through suffering. They were going through trials, they are going through a valley. Um, we have been in a valley season, and I think we all agree with that. Um, and I believe that God is asking you to humble yourself before him because it builds strength and it builds endurance. I believe at this time God is calling his people out to be warriors with an unshakable and unmovable faith because we need to be ready for the next season that's coming. Um, so I've only got five minutes. I'm going to leave it there, but I'm going to read you this quote from one of my favourite songs. Um, wherever you've been, wherever you are, Wherever you're going, take heart, for God is with you. Good morning, everyone. We always talk about body ministry, and that's the season we're in, but I believe we're meant to minister together as couples. So when Tim asked me to preach, I said to Alita, that includes you. And uh, so she was pretty keen to help, thankfully. <laughs> so we've been on forgiveness this morning, and that's part of my message. But uh, I just want to add and continue on with what Alita has started with. We met at the age of 19. Uh, I met Alita, and I was impressed by the first time I met her. Um, <clears throat> She observed me, apparently, but um, I didn't think she was interested in me at all. Can everyone hear me all right? Okay. Uh, so I started to pray and started to seek the will of God, but in it, essentially, a leader was the whole package that I needed in life. I never had a relationship with a woman ever before, and my parents hammered into us boys, my brother and I, the need to... Seek God's will in relation to everything in your life. My father said to me, God knows better than you do, Tom, so make sure you get a clear confirmation before you head into anything relationship-wise. I became good friends with the family, the younger brother and sister especially, but Alita was always aloof, and I had no idea if she even considered me um, husband material. <laughs> So anyway, I went to the Lord one evening. I'd become quite burdened. I'd come through my university career or degree. I didn't have a career, but um, I s sort of sensed the Lord was pushing me in the direction of marriage. I was only interested in marriage. I believe that you should only be interested in that when you're courting. And I went to the Lord and I said, Lord, I need you. I said, I need direction. I need your yes or your no in relation to Alita. And I awoke this, the, that morning, the next morning, with a clear indication, two verses, a confirmation to step out and to go. 
not, I didn't have an understanding at that point, but I would have to rely on those verses to get us through. As we stepped into it, she willingly accepted my proposal, and then the enemy tried to take her out. Three months later, the enemy tried to destroy me. I spent three months in bed with two viruses, meningococcal on top of Q fever. I nearly died. Lita, Alita was beside me each step of the way. Each day she would visit me. Each day she would care for me. Another confirmation of a decent wife. I want to honour her this morning. I've been beside her and alongside her, in front of her, around about her. Helpful most of the time, but not always. <laughs> but she is beside me now in ministry and in life, and that's all I could ever wanted. I could not have manufactured that. I could not change hearts, and God can change a heart. And he's done a wondrous work in both of our lives. But what was the key to it? And she said it this morning. She chose God's way, and that's forgiveness. I just want to look at one person I've been studying, and what I'm about to share this morning is fairly raw and very real. But I've been studying this person, and you think you've had a hard season. Oop, oop, we're destroying things here. Sorry. You think we've had a tough season? Well, this man's just about been through everything, and he chose God at crucial times in his life. Genesis 37 to 50, you probably know who I'm talking about, is the man that I want to focus on this morning. And I've just got a few notes here, but I probably won't use them, but anyway. Genesis 37, we open with a 17-year-old. He's 17 at the time, and he's a man that grows up in a household where he is very well favoured. He is favoured amongst all of his brethren. His father, you know, was a bit of a schemer. He had a lot of faith, but he was known for scheming. He went and he wanted to marry his cousin, specifically, back then they married their cousins, and um, <laughs> he got tricked out of that. He married the wrong one, he got deceived, and then he married the one that he wanted, and uh, apparently two wives weren't enough back then, so then he goes and marries another two, two the maidservants of his wives, so uh, I don't know if it's a good idea, but anyway, he thought it was, so he has 12 children. <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, that's another one as well. That's pretty full on, really. I uh, don't think I could handle it, but he seemed to be able to. But out of that, he favours one son. He gives him a coat which is long and very colourful. Yeah, essentially, it's a look-at-me coat. You know, look at my son. He's, he's my well-beloved. He's very favoured. The other brothers were out herding sheep, a shocking lifestyle, sleeping out in the open each night, camping 24-7. I couldn't think of anything worse, but anyway, camping 24-7, out in the midst of, with the sheep, the Benjamin and this other brother were in the household, living a life of luxury, really. So what happens is that the brothers notice in 37 verse 3, as, ja as, as Jacob was given the, oh, we're going down here, was given the name of Israel. You remember that he wrestled with a strong man and 
God came in the form of a strong man. He wouldn't let him go until he was blessed. He was blessed with the name Israel. And Joseph's the one I'm talking about, obviously. But his brothers noticed that Joseph was highly favoured, highly loved. And what did it cause in the family? It caused resentment and spite and jealousy. And something the Lord highlighted and showed me, and I believe needs to be taught from this passage, is that any child that is given from God is a gift. At conception, they are gifts. If their lives are taken, it is murder. But we have been given, if, even if you're foster kids, it doesn't matter, they're a gift from God. And with those gifts comes responsibilities. Myself as a father and a leader as a mother, we have responsibilities and accountabilities before God in how I raise them or don't raise them. One day I'll have to stand before God, a scary thought, yes. And men, if, even, if you don't, even if we don't agree or, or don't want to think about it, before God we are the head of the home. Whatever happens in our home or doesn't happen is our responsibility. This is something that's been really impressed on my heart. Children are gifts. But we as parents should not be favouring one child over another. You put your finances into one. You put your time into one over the other. You put your efforts into one child over another, I guarantee, and this passage puts it here, that you will invite spite and jealousy and envy into your home. And the problem with doing that is that it can corrupt and destroy that child's view of who God is. I am thankful for parents that were equally fair in everything they did. My brother may not uh, agree with that, but he's not here. <laughs> That's a joke. <laughs> That's a joke, but essentially they were very fair. I try to be as fair as I can when it comes to our own children. But God give us the grace and the ability to be fair. God give us the grace and the ability to show his love to my children so that they can see in our hearts and our minds that we have a love for the Father and the Father has a love for us. And so that when they move out of my home and get married and have their own children, that they will continue on with that love and that care and that compassion. That's something God convicted me of recently. But there was a dysfunctional family. And as you go on into the, I don't even know how long I'm taking here. As we continue on, we see in Genesis 37 and the latter part of it there, we see that Joseph brings a bad report to his father. He then has some dreams. And these dreams were prophetic dreams. I believe these dreams is what he relied on to get him through the trials and the tribulations as he moved on. But he told his brothers these dreams, you know. Sheaves of wheat, 11 bowing down. I mean, what, who's he referring to there? Are you referring to us, they say? And then he goes on even further and he tells them the second dream. The sun, moon and 11 stars bow down. And of course they hated him even more. 
So when he goes and his father says, can you go and check up on them? Because I don't know what they're doing, frankly. Probably not doing the right thing. So Joseph, you go in a managerial, you know, supervisory role, which, uh, yeah, okay. So he goes and they say, here comes the dreamer. What's he been dreaming about now, they probably said. You know, what sort of dreams is he having recently about us? They didn't like him at all. The thing is that God still had his hand on Joseph. And, they were, and in their hearts, the brothers started to scheme and plot against him. And that's where sin begins. You start to scheme and you start to plot. You don't get away with, you don't get rid of the thoughts. You don't bring them captive to God. You, you continue on. And they were in unison in relation to this. They wanted to kill their brother. But Reuben was there and he says, let's throw him in a well, you know. Let's put him in a well. That's probably a better idea. So Joseph spent the evening in the well. They would have heard, he would have heard the brethren having bread and talking and all sorts of things. If you put yourself in his position, what would you have done? What would I have done? Would you start to offer the brothers some sort of recompense or some sort of bribery to get you out of that well? What would you have said? What would I have said? You know, would you have said, can you, you can have my uh, cryptocurrency portfolio? You, know, you can have my classic car. You can have my inheritance. You can have anything. Get me out of here. But Joseph stayed in that well, in that place of isolation, that wilderness-type experience. And the Lord reminded me of this season that we've been in. It's been a wilderness-type experience. It's been a difficult-type experience. I talk to a lot of people across the region and down south especially, and also internationally, and what I'm starting to discover is that everyone's going through the same things. Everyone's struggling in some different forms, but the ones that are choosing God the, and the ones that are choosing to stand are the ones that are choosing to run. They're not just standing, they're moving for God now. And this is where it gets a bit real, a bit raw. Three years ago, I started and commenced and entered into, my mother's not here today, she's at Agnes Waters, there's an opening out there for a new church. Apparently, they were out there for eight and a half years, some years of blessing, a fair few years of uh, difficulty. But anyway, she's out there. I commenced pastoral ministry with my parents. And I thought, oh, yes, everything's opening up for me. You know, didn't feel real healthy, but anyway. They started the ministry, and I joined them in it. And then we hit a roadblock. We were believing for income streams and business opportunities. The Lord has prophesied that over us too many times that I can remember from people who don't even know us. I thought, oh, yes, it's happening. I didn't have to wait too long for this prophecy to become reality. Oh, it was brilliant, you know. Yeah, and we had bush dances and all sorts of things. My dad was a real goer, you know, a real impactor for the kingdom of God. And he got a sore leg and... I'm thinking, oh, that's a bit weird. They got a few scans and, and um, <clears throat> you know, found out uh, there's a big lump there. Not the primary, the secondary. The primary's the size of a cricket ball in the lung. Okay, rightio. So uh, we continue on in ministry. I keep driving myself. I, my health is deteriorating. My body's not producing any hormones at all. 
I'm in brain fog every day. I'm in fatigue every day. I still have most of those symptoms today. And I'm just driving myself. I'm driving my family. My wife's working 60, 70 hours a week. You know, I just kept going, kept going. And over a two and a half year period, I started to declare that by the stripes of Calvary, Isaiah 53, by the stripes of your suffering, Lord, my dad is healed. He's been made whole. He's forever healed, forever blessed. And we saw pockets of healing. We saw a lot of blessing in relation to ministry. But then things started to deteriorate in 2020. I was turning 38. My dad says, I want to be around for your birthday. He's in palliative care by now. And then he's still pushing hard. He's still saying, let's have a service next week. And I'm thinking, oh, we do? Okay. Wonder working power. I think he's got more faith than I do. But uh, anyway, I went to the Lord to say, what's going on, Lord? And he gives me a vision, gives me a dream. I see my auntie who passed away at the age of eight, which is my father's sister. Massive trauma in that family. I see my grandparents who are beautiful, beautiful looking physically. I see Jesus in the midst. I see my auntie turn to my grandmother and said, when is aid coming? A nickname for Adrian. And my grandmother turns to her and says, very soon, my child. Everything starts to fall apart. I start to wonder, what am I going to do? Where am I going to be? I'm down in that hole. I know what Joseph to some extent, went through, I'm, I'm in this pit. Anyway, <clears throat> starts to deteriorate. He's still keen on getting out of there, obviously. And the specialist, he, you know, 100 grand a year to keep him alive, the private health fund paid for. He, two and a half years from diagnosis, did really well, really. The top specialist comes, and he's, my dad turns to him, you know, full of, full of zip and joy. You know, what, what's the next treatment? You know, cancer's everywhere. And he says, uh, says, there's nothing more. Nothing more, sorry, Adrian. And the dad says, that's it. So then he deteriorates. He calls me in and encourages me and so on. And he says, I'm going to glory. Uh, he says, the Lord's going to raise me up out of here. And I said, the Lord's going to raise you up to glory, Dad. So I come home, get 10 people at a funeral, you know because of COVID and so on. And then I get offered a job at the Abel family establishment. No idea what the job is, really. And then I start the job, and I think, what, what is this place? Complex mental health. <laughs> I'm just like, what is this? It's, uh, this is it. I'm out of my depth here. So for six months, I struggled. I struggled to do every, anything, really. Nobody really knew. I hit it quite well, apparently. But, uh, <laughs> but it's been the most greatest training ground I've ever had. And, um, you know, <clears throat> beautiful people to work with. And, and the, the Abel family, very blessed to be working with them. And uh, we're standing with them and we're believing for blessing and breakthrough for their family, too. And um, I got set, sitting next to, uh, now I'm trying to say, how do we get out of this pit? How do I get out of this place? I sat next to Liz and Matt and a few others and uh, start to hear about surrender. See, I'm hiding most of what I'm feeling at the moment because I'm in survival mode. 
And then I start to understand that the breakthrough that I needed was surrender. So I say to the Lord, you do what you want to do, do what you have to do, do what you need to do. I'm pretty fed up with everything, frankly. And I think he just smiled at me and we continued on. So, um, <clears throat> but the feeling that Joseph had, everything was stripped away from him. And I don't know about this season, if you've had things stripped away, I know some of you have this morning, if you lost loved ones, you felt everything's fallen, everything's been torn away. But Joseph held on to God. And in that moment, he chose God's way. He chose to put his faith and trust in who God is. Of course, he gets put into slavery now. He gets sold as a slave, get into Potiphar's house, and he gets given favor again. He gets to look after the entire establishment. His wife notices this man, an attractive, well-built man, and she starts to try and seduce him. doesn't work the first time. The second time, she tries to get him and gets his coat, and then Joseph is thrown into jail. But Joseph chose, in the midst of temptation, he chose God's way again. Here was a woman, probably attractive, I'm suspecting, as Potiphar was one of the main officials in Pharaoh's army. Quite an attractive woman, I'm suspecting. Joseph chose to flee from temptation. He knows what God's law and what God's word or God's way is in relation to sexual immorality. So he chooses to honor God. And God, he ends up ultimately in a prison. What do you think about that? You know? But even in the prison, he starts to interpret the dreams of the baker and the cupbearer. He still continues to do what God has asked him to do. He still continues to use his gifting. He doesn't become disheartened and despondent about what's going on in the previous season. He continues in God's way. Of course, the cupbearer gets put up back into Pharaoh's uh, uh, household, as you know, and the poor baker, well, he loses his head. <laughs> you know, chops his head off and impales him. I mean, couldn't get much worse than that, poor bloke. But anyway, so Joseph says to the cupbearer, you know, remember me. You know, I've done all this for you. Remember me. Cupbearer leaves and literally it says he forgets him. So Joseph could have got annoyed about that. I would have, I would have definitely got annoyed. You know, I'll do all this for you and you forget me. But Joseph chose not to. Two years go past. He has to wait another two years before he's brought up before Pharaoh. And then he starts to have favor like he's never had before. Many years have gone from the first dream he's had to the favor now. But Joseph stayed the course. And he's put in a place of preeminence and prominence as a prime minister. He starts to store up reserves for a famine that's coming. And then, who does he see coming down the road? He sees the brothers that stripped everything away from him. Joseph had been through the refining fire of character building. He'd been through the, the fire of testing and he had withstood it. So God has given him a place of preeminence and prominence. And the reality is that most of us will have to go through that before we see blessing and breakthrough in some ways, in some areas. So this is Joseph's opportunity to absolutely hammer his family. 
what an opportunity to get them back. What an opportunity to destroy them. What an opportunity to put the record straight. He plays a few games, as you know. I mean, some suggest it was for sport. Maybe, no, it wasn't. I believe he did it because he wanted to test the hearts of his brothers. And then I'm skipping a whole lot now, but he puts a, a cup, as you know, in the sack of his younger brother, Benjamin, the one whom he loved, the one whom the father, Jacob, loved also. And then he says, he's serving the head. Whoever has that cup in their sack will be my master's slave. And the brother, one of the brothers specifically, who wanted to kill and destroy Joseph is now a different man. God had been moving and working in the heart of his brothers throughout this time, not only Joseph, but, but also his brothers in general. And his brother offers, no, my father has suffered so much. You know, we put, put this, this other, he's lost his, his favorite son, now you want to imprison and enslave his second favourite. The favourite son, we, we, you know, we got his coat and put goat's blood on it and he's, he's thinking he's dead. So he's gone from, you know, wanting to kill Joseph to wanting to sacrifice himself to be a slave. And you know the story well. Joseph sees the change. You shall know them by their fruits. Joseph sees the fruit. And not only does he forgive them, because he says that God used me to save tens of thousands of people in the family. This morning, as we just looked at that life, I just was reminded of how Joseph chose God's way. Naturally speaking, why would you even contemplate that such a man would come out of such a dysfunctional family? I think that's a great encouragement to any of us or to all of us or whoever. If you've come out of a family that's dysfunctional, if you've come out of a family that was never there for you, take heart in the message today is that God can use you, God will bless you, all you've got to do is choose him. Choose his will, choose his way, and ultimately choose to surrender. Just as we recap, I want to focus on that, just for those who may be struggling to think that God can use you this morning, um, and I'll just recap. So if Joseph's family wasn't a little messed up and dysfunctional, his brothers would never have sold him as a slave. If they'd never sold him as a slave, he would never have ended up in Egypt. And if Joseph had never ended up in Egypt, he would never have been sold to Potiphar. If he was never sold to Potiphar, his wife would, Potiphar's wife would never have falsely accused him of rape. If Potiphar's wife had never accused him of rape, then Joseph would never have been sent to prison. If Joseph had never been sent to prison, he would never have met the baker and the butler for, for Pharaoh. If he never met the baker and the butler, he would never interpret their dreams. If he never interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, he would never have become prime minister. If he never became prime minister, then he would never have wisely prepared for the famine that was to come. If Joseph had never wisely prepared for the famine, then his family back in Canaan 
would have perished and died. And if his family back in Canaan had perished, then the Messiah, the Savior of the world, could not come forth from a dead family. And if the Messiah did not come forth, Jesus had never come. If he had never come, we would be dead in our trespasses and in our sins. This whole chain of dominoes can be traced all the way back to Joseph and his dysfunctional family. Look what God did. <laughs> Look what God did in the midst of impossibilities. He brought about a man who changed the world around him. He brought about a man who was willing to forgive his brethren, brethren that really railed against him. Yeah, he might have taught, said a few dreams and so on which didn't help, but the reality is he chose God's way to forgive. And you and I really know better. God chooses to forgive you if you come to the foot of the cross of Calvary. And if you haven't done that this morning, I would highly encourage you to do so. Life without Jesus has no hope. Life without God, there is no eternity. The only eternity you will see is a place which is called a place where God is not. It's given many terms, you know them a place where there is fear and hatred, a place where the demonic rip people apart, a place where there is no goodness, there is no kindness, there is no love, because there is no God there. It was only ever created for the devil and his angels. It was never created for mankind, really. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all may come to a saving knowledge of who he is. Please come to a saving knowledge of who he is. It's the greatest thing you will ever do. And I've been a Christian since I was nine. 31 years I've been in the faith. It hasn't been easy, I don't know. No, it hasn't, I'll be honest. But it's been worthwhile. He gives me guidance on who to marry, on where to work, on what to do. What would I do without that? I don't know, what I'd be a mess really. And I believe that he's going to bring a great deal of healing in the body. But what I believe, and I'll finish with this, is for a move of God to come across this nation, I believe it's going to happen in the body of Christ first. Potentially, I hope it is. And what does that mean? That means that families will be reconciled. It means that true forgiveness will become a reality. But this morning, even if there are issues in your family, I would deeply encourage you to bring them at the foot of the cross and repent for your part in it. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. But you want to see healing in your family. You want to see blessing in your generation. In this season, you need to do it. God help us all to do that. I think I'll leave it there. It's pretty full on, I know. But... Um, yeah, I think it's hopefully been a blessing to some, if not many. Let us pray.